open up our evening singing together. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart, and I will enter his courts with praise. I will say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice, for he has made me glad. Can we echo that? Amen. He has made me glad. Sing with us. this next song. It says, I don't know why Jesus loved me, and I don't know where would I be if he didn't, but I'm so glad. I'm so glad that he did. Jesus didn't love me. 
how glad we are, how privileged we are that he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. This next song says, Lord, you are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You're everything I need and everything I desire. You are my all in all. Sing with us.
comes up to give us the word, we're going to close with one song. It's called the Family Prayer Song. And may it be the prayer of each one of our hearts. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.
start the series with our brother, beloved brother, Carl Knott. He came back. He is back. This time he brought his wife, and we welcome in the, uh, them in the name of the Lord to be uh, back to their church. That's uh, what he told me. Uh, are, am I right on that? Okay. Uh, so, are you watching me? <laughs> uh, we are very pleased to have him. They had a nice flight yesterday. We met them at the airport, brought them back here, and uh, they are enjoying California again. Uh, for those of you who did not know how long Ruth has she been away from California, 25 years. 25 years. So we welcome her in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are very happy to have her here. We're going to omit the prayers and requests, and uh, you know we're praying for each other. We'll continue praying for each other and the Lord. And uh, unless there is a, a, a special request, I know there's a special request for Carl. He goes under the knife on Friday morning, hopefully morning, and for his shoulder. We need prayers for him. Please do pray for him. And do pray for Jean. She has an interview coming for a new job. Okay, uh, so pray for her, Jean Cruz. Uh, apart from this, uh, Dean. After the meeting, okay. Uh, also, how, this is a question, a very important question, listen to me. How long do you want car to preach tonight? 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock? <laughs> now, we're gonna get you out on time around quarter to nine, and because we know it's a school night, and uh, thank God for that. On Sunday, he'll go a little bit longer, that'll be uh, fine. So, he's starting a series uh, on Nehemiah. I want to say any more, let's bow our heads for prayers. Our Father, we thank you for bringing us all together here, and we thank you for your church here in this valley. We know that we have requests, we have needs, but you know them. But we can say with, an, with the, the Joshua of old, as we sang, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Help us when we leave this place tonight. Say, Lord, I want to be closer to you. I want to serve you. I want to be the person you want me to be. Bless call in a special prayer during this series of messages. And we pray that he will have uh, the full liberty and the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts regardless. In Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. Carl. Good evening. I'm in the same corner as in the other building. But they brought me here last night and informed me that this, the baptistry is also a trap door, and if you go overtime, <laughs> so I've been duly warned. Uh, how many of you have had a chance to meet my wife? I don't know. Ruth, please stand up so everybody can see you. That's my better half. 
August the 19th, we celebrated 38 years married by the grace of God. Yeah. And I'm very thankful for a praying wife. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things I could say, but we're on the clock. So we're going to get right down to the word, except I just want to say at the beginning how much we thank you for your prayers. And we've been praying for you. You've been through the ringer. We've been through the ringer. But, you know, we have a God who says in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when Christians stick together, they act like the Lord. The Lord never bails out on us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He, and he puts up with a lot, doesn't he? I know he does in my case. But he's with us. And he's brought us together in this time. We're going to look into his word, and we're hoping that he's going to speak to us. That's our prayer. So let's read right now. Let's go right to the book of Nehemiah. Right to the book of Nehemiah. First chapter. I'm going to tell you right at the beginning, don't get your hopes up. There's no way we're going to do, finish everything in the book of Nehemiah. You guys already know me too well for that. We could probably spend the whole time in the first two chapters. But we're going to do what we can, and what I leave hanging, Adel will probably finish, right? Either that or I'll have to come back through. Okay. Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to read, I'm still using my old King James Version because I never, I never use the English Bible until I come to the States. I get it off the shelf and it's the same one. So just, if I say thee and thou and you don't know what it means or shouldest, don't worry. You just stick to the NASB or the NIV or whatever you're reading. It's all right. Chapter 1 of the book of Nehemiah. The word of the Lord says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Kislew, in the 20th year, that I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and obey his commandments, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, 
Yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the privilege we have of being together as a family in the Lord. We thank you for this church. I thank you for my family here in San Ramon. I thank you for sustaining them and blessing them. Thank you for the miracle of this wonderful meeting place that you have given them. Thank you that we can be together for the measure of health that we enjoy, for the blessings of salvation and fellowship, for your son, the Lord Jesus, and for the wonderful opportunity we have this evening looking into this word, the word of God, the book of books. We pray the Holy Spirit will have complete liberty with speaker and hearer alike, that your word would be made plain unto us, and that you would touch every heart and minister to every single person here as only you can. And we depend upon you to do it, and we know you will, for we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Before we get into chapter 1, which is where we're going to spend our time tonight, I do want to give you sort of an overview of the book of Nehemiah, just real quick. Uh, some people like it and some people don't, so for the ones who don't, you can just sit there and do this. And the others want to know how to divide the book. I don't like long, complicated outlines, not for, not for general teaching, because they're hard to remember. So I like to keep things simple. So we're just going to divide the book of Nehemiah into two parts, that's all. Chapters 1 through 7 are rebuilding the wall. And chapters 8 to 13 are restoring the people. Rebuilding the wall and restoring the people. Now I want to ask you a question. Which of those do you think was the hardest job? Aha, the people. People are a lot harder to work with than bricks and stones. Anybody here hadn't figured that out? It's because they haven't had any children yet. Or they're not married When you study the Bible, to study a book of the Bible, one of the things that you should do right at the beginning, and it's one of the simple things about Bible study that a lot of people overlook. They're looking for some secret. They're looking for some um, super method of inductive Bible study, and they want to get all these steps they have to go through, and they don't see the simple thing. One of the simple things that you have to do in order to study and to understand the Scriptures is just take the time to read it. There's no shortcut. How many people here, don't raise your hand because we don't want anybody to be embarrassed, but how many people here have read through the whole Bible? And those of you who don't know me know what I'm going to say, or who do know me know what I'm going to say next. Because it's my old horse that I get on all the time and ride. I read the Bible six times before I got saved. That shows you how spiritually retarded I was. Six times, cover to cover. Anybody, anybody here ever read a book called The Phantom Toll Booth? It's a great book. We've read it. 
We read books aloud. Well, not anymore. Our kids are all grown, but we used to take books and read them aloud, uh, the Bible, but also other books that we thought were instructive or helpful. We read the Phantom Toll Booth, and there's a story in there, or in the middle of it, a chapter where a, a, one of the characters named Humbug swam through the sea of knowledge. He jumped to conclusions, which was the isle, island of conclusions. And he, to get out of it, he had to swim through the sea of knowledge. And he swam all the way through it, and when he came out the other side, he was dry. Am I right? He was still dry. He was a humbug. Swam through the sea of knowledge and didn't get anything. Well, I felt like him after, when I finally got saved, I said, well, I was just like the humbug, reading the Bible. I swam through the sea of knowledge all those times and didn't get wet. What in the world was wrong with me? But what astounds me, I don't know how many times I read it since then because I don't keep track. It's nothing to brag about. And however many times I read it, I need to read it that many more times. But what astounds me and amazes me is to meet people who have been Christians for years and they've never read through the Bible. They read John and they read Revelation, and I like both of them. And that's about it. And they, of the four Gospels, they said, well, you know, they're all the same, and I read John, so, you know, like we say in Spain, más o menos. Más o menos. I read them. The Old Testament... Uh, the old teachers back in the Middle Ages and before that time used to say, and it's written down, Augustine was one of them who used to say it, the old is in the new, revealed. The new is in the old, concealed. There are things about the New Testament that are concealed in the Old Testament. There are things in the Old Testament that are fully revealed in the New Testament. And a lot of people, when they have questions about the Bible, they, it's because they haven't read it. And they read a verse and they get stumped on it and they get uh, confused by it and they stop. And my common answer to them is just keep reading. Keep reading. The more you read, the more you're going to understand. So one of the things we do, and this is the point we're making, one of the things we do when we read the Bible is, when we study a book of the Bible is, we just sit down and read it. The first time, don't take any notes. Don't take any notes. Hide all pencil and paper and everything else from yourself. Put your hands behind your back, except to turn the page, and just read it. Just read. Let it say what it says. And then after you've read it, go back and read it again. And go back and read it again. And now in one of these subsequent readings, you can take out a pencil and a piece of paper or whatever you want to, and write down the numbers of the chapters, and beside each chapter number, as you read the chapter, when you finish reading that chapter, try to write a short summary of what's in that chapter. And by short, I mean like five words or less. Just a few key words of what's in that chapter. Okay, we're going to cheat tonight. I'm going to give you all 13 chapters. And I'm not going to give you time to write it all down. Those of you who take shorthand or can write fast, you're going to be all right. The rest of you will just have to get the recording. <laughs> Chapter 1. Inquiry, answer, and reaction. That's what happened in Chapter 1. Nehemiah asked a question. He got an answer, and he had a reaction to that answer. And that's what we're going to see as we move into it tonight.
Okay? Chapter 2. He got permission. Permission to go to Jerusalem. He traveled to Jerusalem. So we say permission, travel, and then he inspected things for himself. In chapter 1, he heard what things were like. What did he do in chapter 2? He went and saw for himself what they were like. Permission, travel, inspection, and then he said, let us rise up and build. So we put permission, travel, inspection, and exhortation in chapter 2. We're still under the five-word limit. I think I made it under five in all of these. Yep. Chapter 3, builders on the wall. It's just a list of who built on the wall and where they built and also includes the names of a few people who didn't do anything. Oops. Chapter 4, opposition overcome. Whenever anybody's doing any work for the Lord, there's always opposition. I remember an old preacher once said, the devil lets sleep in Christians lie. But if you mean business for God, the devil will start meaning business with you. And he'll send everything he can after you. From the inside, from the outside, he'll attack you every way he can. So they had opposition in chapter 4. Opposition overcome. Chapter 5. Then they began to have internal problems. Not all of the problems come from the outside. Sometimes there are difficulties and trials and conflicts among the people of God. Those are harder in some ways to bear up under than the things that come from the outside. And doesn't the devil know it? So this is what we have in chapter 5. Internal problems overcome. Chapter 6. Delaying tactics. And they're saying to Nehemiah, oh, come over here and meet with us here. Or look out, they're going to attack you. Come run into the temple where he wasn't allowed to go into the part where only the priests can go. Go hide in there. Delaying tactics overcome and the wall is finished. What did Nehemiah go to Jerusalem to do? He went to build the wall. By chapter 6, the wall is built. In chapter 7, right at the beginning, they hang the gates and that sort of thing. So they're putting the finishing touches on. That's why we put chapter 7 in the first group of rebuilding the wall. So in chapter 6, the wall is finished. 52 days it took him. Not 52 months, not 52 years. 52 days. Nehemiah. Well, let's see. Jerusalem was destroyed in 586. 586 before Christ. Nehemiah traveled to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls in 445. But it only took 52 days to do it. In all of those years, what hadn't been done, it only took 52 days once they got down to the task at hand. Remember that. Sometimes we make things in our minds, we make them more difficult than they are. Only 52 days it took. He didn't do it by himself. Chapter 7, the gates, the administration, gates, administration, and the registration of the people. And the registration, by that I mean like the registrar. Uh, they registered people and their genealogies. So if you don't like registration, put genealogy. Well, they had to know that the people who were going to live there and be a part of the city of Jerusalem were Jews. 
And the people who were going to serve in the temple were, were Levites, because not just anybody could do it. You had to be from the tribe of Levi. And so they had to have a genealogy, those kind of things that we don't really like to read. Them. When we get to that, it says, so-and-so begat so-and-so, he had so many sons, and then he died. And oh, we just read that nights we have insomnia. Try to make us tired and sleepy. Those things are very important. Who comes from who? Where they come from? What family they belong to? That's very important. And so we have that in chapter 7. Chapter 8, we get to the seventh month of the Jewish year. Seventh month. Why is that month important? Because that was the festive month. That month began with the, with the Feast of Tabernacles. It has the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in it. That's a special month to the Jewish people. And so all the work stopped. Of course, they had the wall built by then, and they were all set up to inhabit the city by then. And so in chapter 8, we have this, the seventh month feast and revival. And as we move through the book, we're going to find out what the keys to revival are. Chapter 9, prayer of repentance. is one of the model prayers of the Bible. I often hear people say, well, I don't really know how to pray. Well, what did I tell you before? Keep reading. Read the Word. The Bible has prayers in it. Prayers of repentance, prayers of joy, prayers of intercession for other people, prayers when a person is afraid, prayers when a person is old, prayers when a person is young, prayers when our prayers have been answered, prayers when you're going to battle, prayers when you're coming back from the battle. The book of Psalms, 150 prayers. Yes, the psalm book, I know, it's 150 songs too. But when you read them, and you'll see he's talking to the Lord. Oh, Lord, he says. Prayers. It's the language of prayer. So read. And here in Nehemiah chapter 9, we have a prayer of repentance and calling on the Lord to help them. Chapter 10, public commitment. Not this, uh, everybody go home and think about it and make a... Uh, commitment to the Lord in the privacy of your home, and there are times when we need to do that. But this was a public commitment, a national commitment, where it was very clear that day where everybody stood, like they say in Spain, que me den los toros de frente. I want to uh, give me all the bulls in front of me, not coming from behind, you know. I want them all out here. I want to know who, what I can count on, what there is, or I guess you say in English, put all the cards on the table, face up. So we know who's who and what's what. And that's what happened in chapter 10. Chapter 11, they choose the people who are going to inhabit the city of Jerusalem. So we put dwellers chosen or inhabitants chosen. Chapter 11. Chapter 12, they have a ceremony to dedicate the wall. Remember those enemies back in chapter 4? They get to hear the, the sounds of the celebration. When they scoffed at it at the beginning and said, Ah, what are they doing? They're going to build this in a day. If a fox ran over that, he would knock it down. And they all laughed and thought they were so smart. Now the wall's built. And that, that fox that was going to knock it over, well, the people are up there, the choirs and people marching around the wall in two directions on that little weak wall that a fox was going to knock over. They're up there marching around the wall in two directions, and they meet, 
and they have a ceremony of praise and dedication. That's chapter 12. But then, chapter 13, an interval of time goes by, and there's unfaithfulness. Remember those commitments they made in chapter 10? We'll see that when we come to it. They're, they cover three main areas. Well, when you come to chapter 13, it's like they went down the list of those three areas and systematically went back on everything they said they were going to do. And so Nehemiah has to come back. He comes back to visit the people in the city, and this is what he finds. So he has to restore the people again. So what do we call that? Re-restoration? I don't know. But I put interval, unfaithfulness, and reforms. Okay, that's the book of Nehemiah. Any questions? Sure, you have questions and so do I. Let's go back to chapter 1. The verse that I think of from the New Testament when I read chapter 1 is, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34. Because Nehemiah, he gets the bad news here in the first three verses. And then he has a reaction. First he talks to men in verses 1 to 3. And then in verses 4 to 11 he talks to God. So we're going to divide chapter 1 into those two parts. First of all, the bad news. Verses 1 to 3. But he only got the bad news because he asked the question. And the question he asked showed what was on his mind and showed what was in his heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why some people never talk about the Lord. Not in there. Not in there. They're thinking about the car of the year or their, or their favorite sports team or whatever. Cooking magazine. All right, ladies, don't get mad. I just have to say something for the ladies, too, or the men come up to me and say, well, how come you never say anything about the ladies? <laughs> he got the bad news because he asked a question, and then he had a reaction. And the question that brought the news to him is equally import, as important as the reaction that he had to it later. But I'll tell you right now, this chapter is so important because if he didn't ask the question, first of all, and then if he didn't have the reaction that he did, there would be no book of Nehemiah. If Nehemiah didn't pray that prayer that he prayed in chapter 1, there's no book of Nehemiah. You hear me? No book of Nehemiah. This is here because a man prayed, because he asked a question, because he had the people of God on his heart and the things of God on his heart, and he asked about it, and when the answer wasn't favorable and it wasn't pleasant, he didn't just say, oh, well, that's too bad, and go back to his golf game. Nehemiah's reaction and his prayer in chapter 1 brought about the rest of the book of Nehemiah. And I want to ask you a question. Have you thought about the potential what things could happen, what your life could be like, what the life of the church could be like if you were like Nehemiah. If you have an active interest in the things of God, if you have a heart for the things of God, and if you react like he did when he saw the problems that the people of God were going through. Some people, when they hear about Christians or churches with problems, they are so quick to criticize. Oh, well, that's because they start getting out their little black book of, things that they didn't like, and then this and that. And some people pray 
and encourage and build. And that's what Nehemiah did. He could have said, oh, well, you know, that's what they get. I mean, that's what happened. Those people lived a long time ago, and they did a lot of bad things, you know, and, and they got what was coming to them. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. In chapter 1, he says, he, he prays and he says, uh, we have dealt very corruptly against him. What did he do? What did he do? Jerusalem was destroyed in 586. This is 445. You do the math. What did he do? He says, we, I, and my father's house, we did it. He identified himself, and he prayed for them. There were three deportations under Nebuchadnezzar. He started taking people out of the city. He took out Daniel and his friends and other people of the royalty in the, in the year 606 before Christ. That was the first group that went out. And then in the year 597, he took out a second group. And then in the year 586, when they destroyed the temple, he took out the rest. He just let the poorest of all people in the land, people who are what we would say today, no count, good for nothing. They didn't have any money. They didn't, they didn't have any education. They didn't have any political clout. They weren't royalty. They were people that not we would look down on, but Nebuchadnezzar. And the world would look down and say, they can't do anything. Just leave them there. Let them... Let them raise garlic and onions or whatever and have drink goat's milk. Who cares? They're not a threat. So after they killed or deported everyone, that's what was left. No temple, no city, burned down, 586, and this is 445. 445. And Nehemiah is asking the question. There were three returns, three deportations and three returns. First of all, Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, he authorized and decreed a return in 537, 538, 537. Because of the way they arranged the dates and counted the years back then, sometimes you'll see a one-year difference, maybe one or two-year difference. Uh, but don't lose any hair or any sleep over that. This just has to do with the way they, the calendars were arranged then. So 537, the first group went back. There were thousands who went back with Zerubbabel. And then later on in the year 458, Ezra went back. And he took about, roughly as we count them, you'll see it later on, you count them as about 1,700 people he took back with him. Not thousands. Not 20 or 30, 40,000, but 1,700 people. And then when Nehemiah went back, guess who went with him? Me and my shadow. Nehemiah. One. Yeah, he had an escort, that's right. And there may have been five or six, but they're not even names, but it leaves us to think that it was just him and his escort that were sent back. Nobody else went. When the King Cyrus sent them back in the beginning to build the temple, to build the house of God, not the city, the house of God, when he sent them back, he said, let anyone who wants to return. Well, not millions went back. Thousands, we said. And then 1,700 and then one. And that's everybody that was there. Where were the rest of the Jews? Oh, well, they had their house and their business and their farm. You know, and they were in Babylon or Persia. And they didn't have any plans on leaving. 
Let someone else do it. A lot of people like that today in Christianity. Let someone else do it. And this is what happened. So Nehemiah is there, not because of that, but because he wasn't around when those people went back until Ezra, and he couldn't go when Ezra went. Why not? Last verse of chapter 1, why not? He's the king's cupbearer. He had a job. He was right there by the king. And what did that job mean? What was the cupbearer? Well, let's just put it in modern terms and say he was like the prime minister or he was like the vice president. He was like whoever the, the person is in the White House that arranges all of the appointments and the visits into the Oval Office. The guy who's in there talking to the president daily. Who handed the king his cup to drink out of? Who tasted out of, the, out of the food, the plates of food that came to the king's table? Who tasted it first? Because one of the common ways of doing away with kings back then, if you couldn't get them out on the battlefield and do something to them, the common way of getting rid of them was to put poison in their food. Go read history and you'll find it out. So how did the kings uh, treat the cupbearers? Oh, they lived in a little slum out on the edge of town, didn't have anything, right? Oh, the cupbearer lived like the king because the king wanted him to realize what a great privilege he had. And if he wanted to keep his job and keep his room in the palace and all of his privileges, he better keep the king alive. That's your job security. So he's right there with the king. And so what happened? And not just here, in Assyria, in Babylon, and in other countries where they had kings and rulers of this kind, the cupbearer was a person that anytime anybody needed a favor, they could talk to him. Uh, That's what we call in Spanish being enchufado or having palanca. You have somebody on the inside who can do the job for you, who can, he'll talk to the king for you, put in a good word for me. So they talked to the cupbearer. Well, to get the cupbearer on their side, of course, they would uh, maybe bring him a, a gift of some fruit they harvested or give him a horse or, or whatever. These guys had a really plush job because they had all of the luxury of royalty and none of the responsibility. They didn't have to run the country. They just had to live in there and eat the king's food and drink the king's wine and talk to the king. And, of course, they weren't allowed to be sad. The king looked at the guy's face all the time because if he looked like he was under tension or sad, it could be because something was going on that wasn't favorable to life and health. So the cupbearer wasn't allowed to be sad or angry in the presence of the king. So now we come to what happened in the first three verses. Here's Nehemiah in this plush job in the king's palace. And it says the time and the place, the palace in the month Kislyu, that uh, equates to our month of December, the 20th year of Artaxerxes. 20th year. He reigned 40 years. This is year 20. He's right at the half, halfway part of his reign. He's in the palace. He's with the king. He's in an established job. And one of his brothers from Judah comes in verse 2. It says here, Hanani, he came and certain men of Judah. And I asked them, 
How's the weather over there? Uh, uh, did you bring me any of those special onions that we grow in Israel? That What did he ask him? What does it say? His question is key because it, it shows us what's in his mind and what's in his heart. The book of Proverbs says in chapter 4 and verse 23, Above all things, keep your heart, guard your heart, because out of it come the issues of life. And do you know where the troubles are in Christianity today? Do you know where the troubles are right around the world, right throughout history? Because men and women and young people don't guard their heart. They guard the, the facade, we say in Spanish, the fachada, what people see. They dress it up. But the heart might be rotten on the inside, putrid, vile. Nobody would want to have what they, what's been in their heart put on a screen up here where everybody could see it. Keep your heart. Be diligent about it. And so where does the devil attack? Where does the enemy attack? How does he ruin Christians? How does he destroy fellowship? How does he get in? Well, the, the easiest way is not from the outside. Because we see attacks coming from the outside and we say, whoop, 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 and we get our defenses up. But if he finds a way to get in the back door and get into the heart, and he starts to do his work, here's a man who kept his heart. And when he opened his mouth, out came the abundance of his heart. No cars came out. No horses came out. No political parties came out. No philosophy came out. What came out of his heart? What came out when he opened his mouth? I asked concerning the Jews that had escaped. Escaped from what? He means the ones who had escaped death and the ones who had escaped being taken off into captivity, the ones who were left there. I asked about them. Why did he ask about them? Not because he was being polite. Because he had them in his heart. He had them in his heart. It was easy. You know what they say? One of the easiest ways to remember people's names is start praying for them. Write their name down and start praying for them. You remember their names. You're praying for them. He had them in his heart. I ask about the Jews that had escaped and were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. Why? He tells you at the end here. He tells you the place, verse 9, uh, unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. God chooses a place for his people to be, a place where he puts his name, a place where he wants them to gather together, and a place where he blesses them. The, the Lord is not uh, teaching us or approving of this lone ranger behavior that some people have. He gathers his people together. He has a place where he meets with them. Yes, you can worship the Lord anywhere. And you should worship him everywhere. And you should never go anywhere where you can't. So all these people that say you can worship the Lord anywhere, they're going to start asking themselves if they can really do it in some of the places they go. Where two or three are gathered together, in my name, there am I in the midst. The Lord meets with his people when they gather together. He's with us everywhere, it's true, but he's with us in a special way when we gather together. And Nehemiah knew that there was a place, one place in all the world that God had chosen in those days 
when he worked primarily through the nation of Israel to put his name. And that place had been destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem. He asked concerning Jerusalem. In Psalm 122, we read about Jerusalem. Our feet will walk on your streets. He sounds like he's in a dream. He's thinking about the, the city of Jerusalem. In Psalm 137, verse 5, the, Jews said, the psalmist says, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. Or in the more modern translations, it might say, Let my right hand be paralyzed. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, you cannot imagine how important the city of Jerusalem was to the Jews, and is to the Jews. Wherever they are in the world when they celebrate the Passover, what do they say? Next year, Jerusalem. It's a primary subject and theme and thought and desire of their heart. So Nehemiah is letting that out. I asked. He didn't ask about the weather. He asked about the people and the city. And here's the answer. They're in great affliction and reproach. The people are not doing well. You ask about the people first, so we talk about the people. The people are in great affliction and reproach. They are really having a hard time. Second, you asked about the city. The wall is broken down. It was broken down in 586, and this is 445, and it's still broken down. No progress has been made. They tried when Cyrus sent them back to build the temple. Some of them tried, and they tried again later in Ezra's time. They tried to start building the walls, but as soon as the enemy saw it, they wrote all these letters to Cyrus and, said, and, and to Darius later, and they said, oh, they're going to build this city. And, they, and they're going to rebel again. And so they said, nope, no building the city. The king stopped them. They never had a commandment to build the city. Cyrus commanded them to build the temple. So the gates are burned with fire. The walls are broken down. There's no protection. There's no separation. There's no control. There's no quality. Anybody and anybody's dog can go in and out of Jerusalem and do whatever they want. There's nothing there. And nothing can ever be done as long as the walls are down and the gates are burned. And you know what? Today... A lot of people like things that way. They like churches that don't have any walls or gates. They just like to have a big revolving door, easy in and easy out. No commitment, no defense, no separation from the world. A lot of people grow up in churches where they never heard the word separation. It's a Bible word. And walls are built for separation. And walls are built for protection. And walls are monuments to the presence. They're part of the testimony. There's a city here. There are people here. And if you want to come in, you come in through the gate. Jerusalem didn't have any of that. I love the question of Nehemiah because it shows where his heart was. But I love his reaction even more. In the book of Amos, that's the only other verse or section we're going to turn to tonight. Come with me to the book of Amos. Joel, Amos, Obadiah. 
Some of you know the song, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Some people still have to sing the song to find the minor prophets. Okay, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, right there, Amos. In Spain, most people use the same version of the Bible, and so it's easy there to tell people the page number. They just say, uh, such and such a verse in a in book, and it's on page uh, 1,220. And everybody that doesn't know where to find the book, they just start turning that page. But we can't do that. We have too many versions and too many sizes of Bibles to do that. So you're on your own. Find the book of Amos. Chapter 6. I stalled a little bit to let you find it. I hope you were turning to it. Chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye unto Calne and see, and from thence go ye to Hamath the great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your border? Ye that put far away the evil day, and cause the seed of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory, and stretch themselves upon their couches, and eat the lambs out of the flock, and the calves out of the midst of the stall, that chant to the sound of the viol, and invent to themselves instruments of music like David, that drink wine in bowls, and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Jacob. There's another sign of what's in someone's heart. When the people of God suffer, do you criticize them? Do you join the critics? Or do you identify yourself with them? They weren't grieved, Amos says. They weren't grieved. He went up to the north to preach to the northern kingdom, and they told him, get out of here. Prophet, go down to your own country. Go down to the south and prophesy. And eat your bread down there. This is the king's city. We don't want to hear this up here. They ran him out. Nobody wanted to hear it. Often the prophets suffered. The prophets of the Lord suffered because people didn't want to hear what they had to say. People only wanted to feel good about themselves. And they wanted to be told no matter what they did that God loved them and was on their side and he was going to bless them and great things are coming and let's all be happy and raise our hands and praise the Lord and feel good and warm and fuzzy. And I only go to church because it makes me feel happy. And I'm not going to go any place where they, as they say, lay a guilt trip on me. Which means where they read to us out of God's word, this is what I'm talking about, not a personal agenda. I'm talking about reading from God's word the things that he says we should and shouldn't do and teaching clearly his word and let it fall where it will. Let it fall where it will. If it steps on toes, well, it's God's word. And if people don't like it, well, there's the door. And God's word encourages us too, doesn't it? It gives us hope. It builds us up. It teaches us of his love. It does all of that. But God's word teaches us also the way of blessing and the way of cursing, the way of life and the way of death. He lays it out plain, and he does that because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to go into the way that brings harm and ruin 
and a curse upon us and punishment. He doesn't want that. So he tells us very clearly, now of all these trees in the garden, you can eat. You see, you can eat of these and these and these, but don't eat this one, okay? You can eat all of these. He says that not because he's a mean God. He says it because he's a loving God. He made them all so that you could eat them. And he said, just don't eat this one right here, okay? Don't eat that one. So what do they do? Just like little kids. When you say, now don't stick your finger in the, in the electrical socket over there. <laughs> right for it. I raised seven, I know. They went right to it. Why did God tell them that? Why did he tell Israel? The way of cursing and the way of blessing, the way of life and the way of death. And what good did it do him to tell Israel that? And what good does it do him to tell us sometimes? A lot of the problems that we get into as believers, and I'm talking about believers who get into problems, and I know we do, because I'm human, just like everybody else. As faith answers to faith in the mirror or in the water, so the heart of one man to another, the book of Proverbs says. Why do we get into it? Not lack of information. We don't need to hear another message, read another book, uh, listen to another uh, MP3, or go to a seminar about this or that. Our problem is not primarily a lack of information. We are the best informed people. We have more information, teaching charts, outlines, opportunities, especially in North America, than anywhere else in the world. And the scripture says, to whom much is given, much will be required or demanded. Remember that. It's a great blessing, but it's a great responsibility. And so, Nehemiah, he sat down and he wept and he mourned. He sat down. He couldn't keep standing up. Have you ever heard news or you know when people are going to tell you something that's bad news? What do they say? Sit down. Sit down. He wept. He mourned. He fasted. This wasn't a fast like Ramadan, you know, where they require you. I could tell you stories about things I've seen living in Israel during the time of Ramadan, living in an all-Arab neighborhood. I could tell you stories. One of the sisters in the church, there was a nurse in the hospital. Things that happened in Ramadan. This is not that. This is fasting because you just have no desire to eat. You just feel sick because of the news you heard. He's so concerned, not about himself. He's concerned about them, and he's praying. I pray before the God of heaven. Now, verses 5 to 11, and we're not going to go through the details of that prayer because this is about to open up here, so I've got to get off of it. <laughs> but he confesses his sin. His sin, the people's sin, as if it were his. He did not criticize them. He identified himself with them. I and my father's house. This is the prayer of a person who can be used of the Lord. And his prayer is just like the Lord's prayer. When the Lord taught his disciples to pray, it's really the disciples' prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not a single personal request. It starts with God. He didn't go running in with his shopping cart into the heavenly Safeway, you know, and 
Tell you, give me this and this and this and this and this. Okay, go to the checkout line, you're out and gone. First of all, he stopped and he remembered whose presence he was in. He says, I, I pray the old Lord God of heaven. Look at, how, look at how he speaks. And he talks about how God has mercy for them that love him and keep his commandments. What did the Lord Jesus say in John 14? If you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my word and keeps it, he it is who loves me. That's where love is. That's how you tell if people love God, if they keep his commandments. That's the motivation for being an obedient Christian, not fear of anything. Love of God, and that's why Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, if any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Because a lot of people who know things about him, but they don't love him. And that's the whole problem with their life. That's the whole problem. They're not in love with the Lord Jesus. And that brings everything. It'll go back to the heart, like we said in Proverbs 4.23. Back to the heart. And there are the problems. Nehemiah is a man who loves the Lord and keeps his commandments, and he knows other people who do, and he's praying for them. And he's praying for the Lord. He's asking him humbly, I beseech you, listen, he says. And he prays for the people and he confesses their sins as his own. And then he says in verse 18, uh, or verse 8, he says, remember. You ever think about telling God to remember something or asking God to remember something? Remember, Lord, remember what you said, Lord. A lot of us couldn't do that in prayer because we don't read the Bible enough to know what he said. You can't get on into prayer and start telling the Lord what you saw on television or the movies or the latest game you played or some novel that you read. If you're not spending time in the Word, how can you claim the promises of God? How can you know His mind and His desire and what He wants to do? You see, this is one of the great benefits besides the edification that it gives us to read the Word and how it strengthens us is that when we come to prayer, we can say to the Lord, now, Lord, remember, you said this. We know we're asking according to his will, and we know he's going to do it. Remember, he says, what you said to Moses. Read the scriptures, and then you'll know how to talk to God in prayer. And he comes to the end of it, and he says in verse 11, at the end he says, be attentive to my prayer, Lord. And he says, look at this. I pray thee, thy servant, this day, and grant him mercy. Listen to my prayer this day. Grant me what I'm looking for this day. You know what our problem is a lot of times? And he's talking about this man. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man, this day, this man. I want you to do this now. Why does he say it that way? Well, because he believes God hears and answers prayer. This is not just some kind of a pressure valve. He's just letting all pressure, venting, you know. God can answer. This man, this day, Nehemiah says, I'm the king's cupbearer. And in chapter 2, you see what happens when he goes into the king's presence and the king asks him a question and he's able to give him the answer. God answers prayer. History changes when Christians pray. You don't have to know a lot about theology. Just neology is fine. Just pray. You don't have to understand how prayer works. Just know this. 
that when you don't pray, things don't happen. And when you do, they do. And then there it is in Nehemiah chapter 1. May the Lord help us to learn and apply these lessons for his glory. Amen. Thank you for this message tonight that spoke to our hearts. We pray that when we leave this place, we will take it with us. We'll meditate on it. We'll read our Bible. We'll trust the Word. We know more. And help us, Lord, to preserve what you have given us. To fight for what we stand for and what we believe in. And to keep the walls of this church in good shape as one heart, one unit, one people for the glory of God. Dismiss us, we pray. In Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. This meeting will be continued on Sunday morning at 11.30. So, come and invite people and seize the opportunity. Our brother is with us. And uh, Sunday we'll hear more, a little bit more because we have more time. The meeting is over. See you Sunday, bright and early. Yes, we get tomorrow, Thursday. Thursday, tomorrow, Thursday. God is speaking here for the women. So tomorrow, if uh, some men are not working.